0: There is no doubt that tobacco causes harm, and we as physicians are dealing with it on a regular basis, but what can we do about it, and what is out there to help our patients? Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Today I have a special guest. He's David Sweener. He is a lawyer. He's adjunct professor of faculty of law at the University of Ottawa, and we're going to talk a little bit about his work with tobacco, with cigarettes, with the law of cigarettes, and all those things. So first of all, welcome to the program.
1: Great to be on, Brian.
0: The thing about you, which I find fascinating, is you've worked globally on this topic. Why, first of all, did you get interested in tobacco and tobacco sensation and all those areas?
1: Well, actually, it ties very much into the medical profession. I was going through law school while my wife was going through medical school, and she kept coming back and telling me about just how many people were dying as a result of cigarette smoking. Like everybody else, you know, I I knew it was bad. I just had no idea the carnage. And after I heard about this from her and her colleagues in the medical school for some time, I eventually said, well, if cigarette smoking is as big a problem as you doctors say it is, you ought to be doing more about it. And there was a pause, and they look at me, and somebody says, David, you don't get it. You know, figuring out why people are getting sick is a medical scientific problem. Dealing with it is a social, legal, political problem. You lawyers ought to be dealing with it. And that actually seemed like a good idea, so I decided I'll put a year or two into dealing with this whole cigarette problem, then I'll get on to getting a real job, and that was uh, about 35 years ago.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because, yeah, I wouldn't really think of the lawyers getting involved, but it's true. A lawyer could do a heck of a lot of good in this area.
1: If you look at the whole history of what we've done for health and how much of it comes down to basic public health measures and how many basic public health measures like getting sanitary facilities into a community, you know, pure water standards, vaccination programs, nutrition standards, food preparation standards, auto safety standards, so much of that comes down to law. And doctors inform us and are terrific advocates for this stuff. But I think ultimately it comes down to a political struggle. We have to push to get change in a society in a way way that delivers better health. And we know that something like 85% of the increase in life expectancy in the last 120 years is from these basic public health sorts of things. When we look at where can we gain more life expectancy now, it's pretty hard to match what we could do with dealing with smoking. I mean, it's still by far and away our leading cause of preventable death, despite everything that we've done in the last 50 years to try to reduce smoking. And it's actually a pretty simple problem. The problem from a health standpoint isn't just people using tobacco or getting nicotine. It's smoke. It's sucking smoke into your lungs. That's what's causing the cancers and the heart disease and the emphysema. It's just a really dirty delivery system.
0: Well, you know, you bring up something which I've always wondered about. I think when I look at in the United States here, you know, the whole health care debate and all the things and what physicians are doing and what's happened to the health care system. We as physicians are very bad advocates for ourselves and maybe even for our patients in the sense from the political standpoint. I know that most of my friends who are attorneys, I mean, you focus your day on things like legislation. You focus your day on getting things through Congress or whatever. I mean, that's what a lot of politicians or lawyers, but physicians are kind of like, well, I just got to see my patients. I got to worry about that. Has that impacted medicine in general? I mean, you've seen in Canada, the United States, the doctors don't really care about the politics of medicine.
1: I think on the one hand, yes, by and large, uh, people are very busy seeing their patients. And, you know, it's been likened to things like having to deal with people who've fallen off a cliff. I mean, they're there, they're at the bottom of the cliff, they're bleeding to death, they've got broken bones, you've got to deal with it. But at some point, somebody has to go up to the top of that cliff and put up a fence, because that's the problem. You've got to reel it back to say, what's causing this? Why are all these people getting sick? And what can I do about it? The good news is that it often doesn't take very many people to make a difference, and there's certainly been some brilliant physician advocates on issues like smoking, but many others as well, you know, who speak with real authority because of that medical background, the first-hand experience. You can have somebody who's a lobbyist for a cigarette company in a debate on television and I would much rather, instead of being there myself, have someone like you show up in a lab coat because that just can, you know, it conveys so much authority of saying, let me tell you what it's like watching somebody die from emphysema. Why are you selling products like this? Why don't you come out with non-combustible products, things that don't kill people? Physicians have played a huge role in things that we've done in reducing smoking, and often at an individual level. I mean, people who just say, this is really bothering me, I'm going to do something about it. And often just trying to find new ideas, you know, what's out there that the establishment isn't doing? Because, you know, any establishment tends to be late at picking up on new ideas. And it's often individuals who say, just a second, I see something out here that could really make a difference and I'm going to push for it.
0: You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is David Sweener, and we're talking with David, who's a lawyer. And you know, one of the interesting things that you brought up, I remember doing a story, I did 20 years in television, where it was a story more or less talking about medical malpractice. The story idea was that malpractice costs here in the United States are driving the cost of medicine up. And if for some way we could reduce all these cases, we could somehow reduce those costs. So it was actually brought to me by an orthopedic surgeon, and the orthopedic surgeon wanted to talk about how he can't practice because more and more his malpractice insurance has gone up. Okay, so that was the basic story. So I said, yeah, let's do the story. And trying to be a good reporter, I wanted both sides. So I said, let me get an attorney who believes that malpractice cases are necessary to help patients, and let me get this doctor who says it's impacting care. So when I did the story, I was trying to get one side against the other, be objective, In my mind, I will tell you as a physician, I was kind of saying, well, maybe we can try to get the malpractice cases reduced because it is an issue, blah, blah, blah. But I want it to be objective. The physician came on and presented an amazing case. He talked about it and he was very eloquent. The attorney made a few points but had someone who had such devastating injuries from an automobile accident and also the follow-up surgery with the physician who had gotten the money, and thank goodness they got the money because they now could be cared for, that it totally crushed the orthopedic surgeon's argument. If you're just watching, you went, oh, my God, that poor person. They had the compelling case. They were able to show the case. So my question is, and you kind of alluded to it, When we're talking about tobacco, where I think physicians know it's not good, lawyers know it's not good, you want to reduce it, could you get the forces together? Like, in other words, get the creativity of the lawyer and maybe the knowledge, the white coat, whatever, on the medical side of the physician and put it together, and have we been able to do that?
1: We have up to a point, and we've done very, very well when we can do that, often by lawyers talking about, here's the sort of changes you can get in the law, and physicians talking about, and here's why you need them, you know, what it's going to do. Let them be the one telling the stories of the devastation. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, just getting something new. So when we look at, you know, why are people dying from smoking, And it isn't the nicotine, it isn't the tobacco, it's the smoke. Doctors can explain that. I mean, people can say, why are people getting sick? It isn't just that about 40,000 Americans a month are dying from cigarette smoking. They're dying because they're getting their nicotine by sucking smoke into their lungs. So lawyers can look at that and say, well, my gosh, you mean there's evidence that people can get what they want from smoking with massively less risk? And the answer is yes. Well, if that's true, then what sort of laws should we have in place or what sort of litigation should we use? What sort of facilitation should we have to try to move people who wouldn't otherwise be able to quit using nicotine to at least getting it in a way that they're not sucking smoke into their lungs and get rid of the vast majority of the risk? It's a pretty simple solution to our biggest cause of preventable death. And that's just a matter of combining scientific knowledge that, you know, essentially it's the smoke stupid with. Legal knowledge about how do you change the laws in order to allow that to happen as opposed to, you know, what we see now with a whole abstinence only approach toward nicotine and tobacco in countries like the United States, even from agencies like the Center for Disease Control, you know, just saying don't use anything. And we know how well abstinence only has worked on you know, sexual health or alcohol or illicit drugs or anything else. Physicians are really well-placed to say, we see the research on the genetics, on the neuroscience. There's many people who are going to continue smoking if they can't get their nicotine in another way. Tens of millions of Americans, half of them are going to die a direct result of the smoking if they don't manage to get off this delivery system. We can change the delivery system. We can change the laws. We can facilitate people moving to smokeless tobacco products they have in Sweden, the sort of moist snuff there is in the United States, the electronic cigarettes, the medicinal nicotine products, the heat not burn products. Anything that gets rid of the combustion gets rid of the vast majority of the problem. And that's simply a matter of combining what we know from the science with what we know from law. How could we change this? What about differential taxation? So the deadliest products cost the most. The deadliest products are not advertised. The products you could replace them are. I mean, how quickly could we move people? How great an incentive could we have for the development of ever less deadly and ever less addictive alternatives to cigarettes? How quickly could we get rid of an epidemic? And that's just a matter of combining some pretty simple principles of what we know from the science on nicotine delivery and smoke and what we know about what we could do with law and regulation.
0: David Swainer is adjunct professor, faculty of law, University of Ottawa. He has spoken throughout the country. He's worked with organizations, International Union Against Cancer, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, Pan American Health Organization, bringing up some very interesting points. And from a global standpoint, I'm curious, how is the world doing against tobacco? It seems that a lot of the countries, when I at least look at documentaries and things, that other areas of the world are being targeted by the tobacco companies.
1: Sure. Well, there's over a billion, probably between one and a quarter and one and a half billion people in the world who are currently using combustion-based delivery to get their nicotine, cigarettes, but also things like Diddy's in India, Cretex in Indonesia. The best estimate from the World Health Organization is based on current trends in consumption. You know, if we just continue to do the sorts of things we're doing, roughly a billion people globally are going to die this century as a direct result of cigarette smoking absolutely horrendous to look at something like that. But at the same time, you know, we can see some places that have done incredibly well. So in recent data that came out of Europe, looking at the prevalence of smoking in various countries in the European Union, and there's an outlier. Sweden is reporting daily smoking rates of 5%. Nowhere else is any lower than 16%. Much of the world is well over 30%. But Sweden has managed to get smoking rates down to 5%. Some parts of Sweden are much, much lower than that. And they haven't stopped using tobacco. They just don't smoke it. And when they don't smoke it, when they use an oral form of tobacco called snus, it's like moist snuff in the States, and indeed is available in the United States, you avoid virtually all of the risks all the health data from Sweden, which of course has some of the best health data in the world, very hard to show that these snooze products are causing any real harm. It's minimal if it's there.
0: Any issues with oral cancer, tumors, those sorts of things? Have we seen no, that? No,
1: no. There's wide beliefs about that and the Swedish data just doesn't back it up. And of course, Brian, you can't ever show that something doesn't cause cancer. You just can't see that it does. So if it is, it's causing it at a very low rate. And as you would know so well, you know, that's not something we would say about cigarettes. They are causing enormous levels of cancer. It's the smoke.
0: Right, right. And what you're trying to do is obviously reduce. The ideal thing, of course, would be to use nothing at all, and you try to get that. But if you can't, you try to wean people down. As far yeah. as your work and in the work you've done around the world, are you meeting any success? How have you been able to reach out to people and try to, with medical groups and others, get to them and talk to them?
1: Sure. I think we have made incredible strides on things like, you know, I was involved in getting uh, smoking off airplanes and getting cigarette taxes used as a health measure and getting package-based health warnings. And we've had a lot of breakthroughs on those things, and we've seen them globally. Dealing with issues of risk reduction has been much harder because there's a real strong abstinence-only approach to drugs, including nicotine, in many countries. And we see even in the United States, you know, major anti-tobacco groups who will lobby to try to prevent people from moving from cigarettes to smokeless tobacco or to electronic cigarettes, even though the evidence would be that they're going to massively reduce their risk. It's really like somebody saying we should ban condoms because they might encourage illicit sex or get rid of safe needles, for heaven's sakes. Somebody might use drugs if they could get a clean needle. We'd see different approaches in different countries. So a place like the UK, which has been wonderfully pragmatic on a lot of issues of public health and we've seen it in the Republic policies towards alcohol when other places were going for prohibition. We've seen it on illicit drugs. And we're seeing real interest in moving people to non-combustion tobacco products, things like electronic cigarettes. The Royal College of Physicians in the UK, which is probably the most prestigious medical body in the world, has been very open in saying, based on everything that we can see, these products are likely to be at least 95% less hazardous than smoking. We should encourage people to move to them. We've seen people rebel against efforts or laws in the European Union that have actually banned the Swedish in every country other than Sweden. Here you've got the safest tobacco product going, it gets banned, but cigarettes are sold everywhere. We've seen people pushing against that, including in a court case now that's challenging that law. Again, it's repeated in various places around the world. I think we're seeing a grassroots movement as well by consumers themselves who are saying, we can get information now from the internet, through social media, we can find ways to reduce our risks. And very similar to what we've seen happen in the past on issues like AIDS, it's the people at risk themselves who are starting to really take the lead on this. When you talk to the people who would be in a vape shop about you know what they're getting, where the people are finding ways to access Swedish snus, even in parts of the states where it's not available, the people are pushing back against abstinence-only messages from the CDC or the FDA. I think that's a really good sign, and it's the sort of thing that we've long wanted to see in public health, people taking charge of their own health people being able to take control, make decisions for themselves. And that has huge potential. You know, if we can do that, rather than saying, we're going to tell you how to live your life, we're saying, we're going to give you the information you need to make better decisions about your own health. And miracles come from that sort of thing. I mean, that's been a huge part of what we've accomplished to date. And it gets around some of the problems we have now, where, you know, in the United States, the surveys of tobacco users tell us that only about one in 10 believes that any form of smokeless tobacco is less hazardous than a cigarette. So one of the reasons we still have tens of millions of people smoking cigarettes is that they don't know that there's in a product that's on the market, you know, on the shelves of the stores where they buy their cigarettes, that would be massively less hazardous. You know, what if they knew that? What if we use differential taxation to give them an incentive to move to those products the way Sweden had done? And I think if we saw more of that happening, we would be able to see some very significant movements very quickly. You know, as we've seen with the pickup of technology, consumer products in other areas, we can go through very rapid transformations. And here we have the potential to do something that could literally save millions and millions of lives the way that Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller has been pushing. that We need to start giving people accurate information on differential risks. We need to be facilitating smokers moving to less hazardous products. We need to be encouraging the development of ever more less hazardous, less addictive products. We need to get away from the moralistic abstinence-only thing. We do that, we get a public health breakthrough.
0: David Swinor, I thank you for joining us on Primary Care Today on ReachMD. It was really a pleasure to have you with us, and I really appreciate you taking your time.
1: Great chatting with you,
0: Brian. And if you missed part of this program, you can download it, reachmd.com slash today. Thank you so much for listening.